Welcome into the new chapter of the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my co-conspirator and partner in crime, the doctor himself, Jimmy Butolato. Hi, everyone. Hey, now. And we are excited to bring you a whole new era of Original Gangsters podcasting, video casting. We are now officially multidimensional. We are now right in front of your face in crisp, clear video uh, that's going to be coming uh, at you at all uh, on all the different social media platforms, especially on YouTube. We're excited to be here. Um, and we're really excited to bring on uh, our first guest of the video era um, who has uh, thrown quite the wrench into the uh, historic Operation Family Secrets trial and, and, and Family Secrets case that came out of the Chicago Mafia in the uh, 2000s. Uh, biggest organized crime prosecution in American history, uh, dating back to the commission case, which had happened 20 years before that in New York City. This was the biggest uh, prosecution ever of the Chicago outfit. Uh, 14 leaders of the Chicago Mafia indicted for 18 different gangland homicides dating back three decades. The indictment came down in the spring of 05. Trial was in the summer and fall of 07. I covered it. Uh, for Chicago Magazine, I wrote a book about it called Family Affair, Greed, Treachery, and Betrayal in the Chicago Mafia. And we thought that the entire book had been, no pun intended, we thought the book had been written, that the final chapter had been penned, and we had, we had kind of uh, put it away in a, in a box in a closet and said that the Family Secrets uh, case was all nice and tied up in a nice little bow. And then here comes our, our guest, Charles Maselli, a.k.a. Chucky Wallace, uh, a Chicago mob associate from the uh, Grand Avenue crew um, who tried to come forward during the trial uh, to give testimony that would have um, aided uh, Joey the Clown Lombardo uh, in relation to his murder conviction for the Danny Seifert uh, slain from 1974. And also trying to shed new light on the Spilatro brothers' murder, which were the, the headlining hits uh, at, at that uh, trial uh, depicted in the movie Casino. And uh, with some new court filings in the last month, we have found uh, a whole new angle uh, from this case. And we we're going to bring on uh, Chuck Maselli to, to fill us in. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chuck. Hey, how you doing today, Scott? Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and giving your insight. I know you've been trying to get this story out. It's been difficult. The mainstream uh, media and press uh, don't really want to uh, give it much time of uh, or, or much um, weight. They, they, they're uh, very quick to dismiss. They, they don't like the fact that Operation Family Secrets might not be tied up in the nice little neat bow that we thought it was. Um, and... I'm going to give the floor over to you, but, you know, I'm just going to give a, a quick 10-second <laughs> synopsis. You know, Chuck claims that as an 8-year-old boy, he witnessed the Danny Seifert murder and that um, a, a dirty Chicago police officer named Rick Medea uh, was the trigger man, and he wanted to testify to this uh, to help out Joey Lombardo, who was like a... a surrogate father to him, and that clearly brings up some questions of conflict of interest that he can address. But the reason I want to give Chuck a platform, and then I'm going to turn it over to him, is that the part of the story that has not been properly 
uh, spotlighted is that uh, Chuck has been a successful, a very successful uh, witness for both uh, federal prosecutors and state prosecutors over the last uh, 30, 30 years, testified at a number of uh, big-time uh, corruption trials and uh, has helped the government solve some murders. And his testimony, uh, whether or not you want to believe it or not, when it comes to Seifert and Family Secrets, based on his track record, he deserved to be heard um, because he was being co-signed in all these other cases by various members of federal law enforcement, various uh, state of Illinois prosecutors that were giving merit to the cases that he helped them build. So he, he had a reputation as a successful witness. Um, I'm not going to give my opinion, uh, honestly, on, on whether or not what he's saying is the truth or not in terms of family secrets, but I, I, I will stake my reputation on saying that he had the right to get up there and say it. So, Chuck, why don't you give us a quick little, uh, or maybe not so quick, G- give us uh, where you're coming from. Let's start from the very, uh, from the very beginning and uh, how were you as an eight-year-old uh, even possibly, you know, I don't want, not involved, but there to see this very high-profile mob hit uh, carried out? Well, to start with, Scott, there's a lot of history behind this that people don't understand. And when you don't have the full picture, it's real easy to make assumptions. And assumptions tend to make people look foolish, which is what has happened over the years. Um, It's not a secret that in the early 70s, my mother, you know, I've done other interviews with Joe Seifert, who happened to be or happens to be Danny Seifert's uh, younger son. Who's present. Let's give, let's real quickly, for for people that don't know, uh, Danny Seifert was a uh, mob associate and kind of a mob front man for a plastics company, uh, or sorry, for for a pail manufacturing company, workers' pails uh, manufacturing company out of New Mexico. He was in that business with Tony Spilatro and Joey the Clown Lombardo, two very dangerous individuals. Uh, he was about to testify against Lombardo and Spilatro, but before that, he had been very close to Joey Lombardo, actually named his son Joey after Joey Lombardo. Uh, and then the murder was carried out in front of uh, Danny Seifert's wife and young son. So it, it got a lot of uh, headlines, and it took place at his plastics factory in Bensonville, Illinois in September 1974. Go ahead. Chuck. Correct. And, you know, just as much as Joe wasn't intended to be there that day, neither was I, or it wasn't you know, obviously thought out and planned. Um, my mother was a single mom at the time going through a very uh, tenuous years after a divorce. Uh, she had attempted suicide, and that was how I had ended up meeting Joe for the first time, which... I've made pretty public. Um, me, and Joe Lombardo, mother, me and Joe Lombardo. Yes. Yeah. When I met Joe, he actually had saved my mother's life. I've heard from your guest, the last show you had, Red Wimet, telling all your viewers and your listeners that I would lie for Joe Lombardo because of that. Let me explain something. When all of this came about, as everybody knows, I was incarcerated. Um Coming home to my children and my grandchildren, as much as I love Joe Lombardo, there's nothing in the world that I would ever, ever do intentionally that would put me behind bars the rest of 
my life for perjury or conspiracy or anything like that that I didn't know was rock solid truth um, that would take me away from my family. So Red, as usual, is wrong, just like he told you, Scott, that he knew me. I've never met the man in my life. Um, when he left the streets in 88, I was just becoming more and more active. I was a young man. In fact, in 88, I was only 22. Um, didn't know him, knew of him, knew people that knew him pretty well. Um, I'm not going to disparage him. Uh, I'm just going to say that he was at a much different sub-level than I was at as far as who I associated with and who I knew. Um, the people that I associated with were primarily out of River Forest and Elmwood Park. Um, I was more tied to the Elmwood Park and Grand Avenue crew, as you said, than I was with anybody else. Um, I intermingled. Um, things Red would not know or, you know, if he was such a super informant, he should have known. Um, I was so well trusted, I laid tile in Angelo LaPetra's house in Bridgeport, um, you know, when I was a young man. And knowing Joey the way I did since I was a young boy, my uncle, who was an associate, um, happened to have been watching me the day that this came about in uh, September 27, 74. And my uncle, I'll be the first one to admit, he was not the sharpest tool in the drawer. Um, he had an alcoholism problem even back then. It wasn't as significant as it became later in life. But Tom was one of these wannabes. I mean, that's a, a, he's my uncle and I love him, but the truth is the truth. He was a wannabe. He wanted to be around the big guys. He wanted to be a big shot. He was a cop. Um, his father-in-law was a Chicago police officer out of 18 uh, for his second marriage. And this guy, Medea, was, you know, eye in the sky. And, you know, I can do this for you. I can do that for you. And Tommy ate it up like candy. Um, got him involved in a lot of things that hopefully someday will come to light. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, basically, he was watching me the day that this happened. My mother left early in the morning for work. He either knew or got a phone call. I believe he got a phone call. And he threw me in the car with a blanket, and we stopped at a gas station. He grabbed me a bottle of pop and some candy, and he said, we got a couple stops to make. And we made those stops. We met Medea. And then, you know, I didn't know where I was going then. I'll never say I did. Um, we ended up out in Bensonville. And I heard, you know, obviously I heard the shotguns going off. And Tom get back in the car. And then later I saw him and Medea meet. And, you know, what transpired after that is what transpired after that. Did I know in 1974 that they executed Danny Seifert? No, I did not. Um, did I find out years later through my affiliation with my uncle and Medea and the mob? Yes, I did. Um, did I keep my mouth closed about it at the time that, you know, I was young? Of course I did. Um, I had my reasons for coming forth in 2001. And when I talked to the agents originally, I went into Evansfield, as everybody knows. Everybody's seen the Chicago Tribune article. Everybody you know, maybe today doesn't remember the Fox News coverage that was out there, but it was quite extensive with Larry Ellen and also in Florida. Um, and they came up with nothing. Well, let me explain something to you. When you have the press agent for the federal agency who is related, I'll, I have to be cautious how I say this here, is related 
to one of the reporters at a major television station, and they start out with lying, it doesn't get any better from there. Wait, Chuck, the story- just, just so people understand, you're referencing because you got to you got to remember our audience is literally on all you know all continents, so we're very global, and uh, not everyone is incredibly versed on the Chicago mob. So you're you're saying that you took authorities out in 2001 to, to what you thought was a, or what you were uh, telling them was like a graveyard. In 2001, I was, I was approached in 2000 by a special agent with the ATF. And basically I reached out to him for a couple of matters and he reached back out to me and we came to an agreement that I would not have to testify against anybody pretty much, but myself and in a, in a one or two specific people that I knew I had a problem with that definitely deserved to be testified against. Um, they both, both of these individuals have done things against the organization. They've done things against people in politics. Um, both of them have been investigated as in high level top echelon informants in the past. So, so you take, you take them, you take the, 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 the police or the feds out looking for bodies. They can't find anything. You think there was some subterfuge in there. Oh, I know there was. Okay. I know because they started out the story with, oh, we're looking for machine guns. I never said a word to anybody about a machine gun. We were out there for bodies from day one. And let me ask you something, Scott, you've done, you know, some investigative reporting. You've worked for the Illinois, you know, attorney general. Have you ever heard of a crime scene dig when the dogs have come in from another county? No police reports are available, which I provided you the documentation on. They like disappeared, evaporated into thin air. Um, and then you turn around, you go out there with garden tools. You see, you're, you're of the opinion, and I believe you do have some ammunition, uh, paperwork wise that the, the cops or the government, in addition to cooperating with you because of them playing both sides of the fence and everyone knows that the Chicago mob has had its hooks very deep into the Chicago police department, as well as uh, different uh, nooks and crannies of, of uh, Chicago uh, politics that they were also trying to uh, discredit you. Yes. You were kind of getting it from both sides. Yeah. Let me, let me ask real quick that do you think just Chicago PD or ATF? Chuck, you can speak to it. I'm sorry, Doc. So, what did- yeah, so I was going to say, are you saying that Chicago PD was trying to undermine the investigation or the ATF eventually, so elements US- within the ATF started doing US- sketchy things too? Attorney's office and the FBI. Oh, okay, I believe okay. the ATF was doing the best job that they could under the circumstances that they were under. Um, so was the assistant U.S. attorney I was working with, but the head of organized crime who had signed my proffer agreement, um, when he found out what I knew, I believe he did everything in his power to sabotage the case because unbeknownst to the agents I was working with, unbeknownst to anybody, Family Secrets was already going on. They were already in negotiations and, and talking about cooperation with Calabrese. They already knew that those people were on the radar with Calabrese. And it was like when I mentioned certain names of uh, one in particular individual that's out in Evansfield that is day, I believe, unless they went out there and sanitized the area, which is entirely possible since 2001. Um, you know, it was like the minute the dogs hit and the agent that I worked with said, we need a crime scene. We need to do this the right way. We got shut down. 
Trump, and it's, you know. Finish up, Trump, yeah. and then I want to add something. Um, it was taken back to the jail, and about a week after I was there, they approached me, and they said, we're sending you back to Florida. This never happened. You're full of shit. And if you know what's good for you and your family, shut your mouth. So uh, there's a couple things that I, I want to point out. First, let's let everyone know again, full transparency. Uh, Chuck uh, was sentenced, he did about a decade uh, in prison for uh, fraud down in Florida related to some uh, nightclub investments that didn't uh, get paid back. Um, so, you know, you know, Chuck has a, a record. You know, he's he's not afraid to admit his his connection to past crimes as well as to you know, members of organized crime that we're talking about. But I also want to point out, we're, we're trying to be as even-handed as we can here, Chuck's allegations that the FBI did not handle family secrets, or I should say the federal government did not handle family secrets all above board. As someone who's investigated it, I fully co-sign that because, because of one very, very simple reason, and we can get into this uh, with Chuck. In, in a lot of ways, it could taint the whole investigation, and in, in a lot of ways, it should. Um, Nick Calabrese, he's referenced, was the star witness at Family Secrets. He was a, a, a hitman a mob lieutenant from the Chinatown crew who turned against his brother, who was one of the main uh, co-defendants in the case, Frankie Breeze, uh, Calabrese. And uh, Nikki Slim Calabrese became the first made member of the Chicago Mafia uh, to ever take, take the witness stand. And in his debriefing, talking specifically about the headlining murders in that case being the Spilatro brothers' murder, he not only implicated Johnny No-Nose DeFranzo as taking part in the Spilato brothers' murder. He tabbed DeFranzo as being the coordinator of the hit. He was in charge of logistics. He arranged the hit team. He, he was the orchestra. He planned the whole thing out. John DeFranzo was alive until two years ago. John DeFranzo was never indicted in, in Family Secrets. There were rumors that there was going to be a Family Secrets 2 that would include DeFranzo and his brother. Um, that never happened. So the FBI clearly, in my opinion was in bed with DeFranzo, who was the boss of the entire Chicago mafia. And they were protecting him by not including him in Family Secrets, which taints Family Secrets. Did you ever ask your Chicago FBI guys directly? Or, or is it not worth that because they're going to yeah, tell they you? Yeah, they, they deny it. <laughs> okay. Just like all the Detroit uh, FBI agents deny that Jack Tocco was an a informant. Well, look at look at what happened with Whitey and uh, John Conley. I did time with John Conley. I used to have breakfast with him every day. Yeah. Wow. So I, I I don't see much of a difference, honestly, in some ways, between what happened in Boston with Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy be, being given a license to kill as long as they they feed the government busts. Same thing in New York 
with Linda Vecchio and, and Nino Villano from the FBI that, were, that was operating Greg Scarpa, the Grim Reaper, and the Colombo Crown family. As long as you feed us bus, you have a license to kill. And honestly, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And in Chicago, it's the exact same thing with Johnny No-Nos. So the fact that Chucky is now, you know, uh, fleshing out some, some possible more corruption in that case, I, 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 don't, I don't dismiss it. Without co-signing it, I don't dismiss it. Well, you got to understand, Scott, case came down in 05. Between 01 and 05, I become allegedly discredible. As you've got the documentation, they said the same thing in 1990. In 1990, I came forward because of a problem with the sheriff's department when I was an officer. And a difference of a, a business problem that ended up becoming involved in this with between myself, James DeLeo, um, Jack Novelli, a guy named Lou Del Medico, who was all sell, they were all selling our jobs for O'Grady. And there was a big falling out about this. And I'm not going to lie about it. I got pissed. Three of my friends were looking at losing their jobs that they paid for to Novelli and Del Medico. And I... Uh, I got reached out to by the U.S. attorney. His name was Scott Levin. And I got questioned, and I told the truth. And they did a full investigation. And I had left the department, and I opened up a construction company, and I had a business partner that had a handicapped sister. And we were young guys. We were in our 20s. And this was before I went to another agency. And long story short, we had a business checking account. We cashed some checks through a currency exchange, and I, unbeknownst to me, and it's proven because the case was completely bullshit and was completely thrown out, um, Tony went in there and he cashed some checks at this currency. I get a phone call one day. Hey, uh, you need to go over to the currency. They got like four or $5,000 worth of your checks, and they didn't clear. So I go over there, and I'm clueless i had no idea what the hell had happened all i knew is that you know me and this kid were on the same account together and uh now i find out that the owner of the currency exchange is jimmy DeLeo, a state senator who i happen to be very close to and also happens to be on the finance committee for the state of illinois which was illegal but you know he's hiding it through a third party and i get hustled in and i go over to you know, the meeting place, you know, staging area for most of the mob meetings, which was Igor's Barber Shop on Belmont, which was another mistake Red made in your last podcast. He said it was on uh, Berwyn Avenue where the Fekirata hit was staged. It wasn't. It was on Belmont. Red, get your facts straight. I think uh, I might have said that, too. So you hit me, hit me just as hard. I got. I think I got Belmont and Berwyn confused. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Igor's was a staging area. And how I know that is because I happened to have been there that night. We won't get into that right now. And, uh, you know, you turn around and I get hustled into Igor's and DeLeo walks in and tells me, he says, well, we're going for a ride and only one of us is coming back if you don't give me my money. Well, I took that from a guy who I had done unfathomable things for, like a sour grape in my mouth. So, yeah, I reached out to the feds and I said, you know, what do you want to take this guy down? And uh, I talked to him. They did an investigation. They wired up. We got him on tape. 
And then all of a sudden it went away. But what was funny is all the information we gave him about Novelli selling jobs, about uh, Willie Johnson selling jobs, about O'Grady being involved. Two years later, here comes an indictment from Scott Levin, a U.S. attorney, and lo and behold, everything Chuck said was true, but they used a landscaper out of Elmhurst as the primary witness, and I was an unindicted co-conspirator. I got a U.S. marshal knocking on my door with a grand jury, excuse me, a grand jury, a trial subpoena uh, for Novelli. And the minute Novelli found out I was on the witness list, he pled guilty. And what's even more funny is if you go into PACER or, you know, the federal court website, you can't get the, can't get a copy of the indictment. Uh, it's the same thing with Medea. Medea was, you know, I'm jumping around a little yeah, bit Yeah, so let's, let's talk about Rick Medea for a second. Uh, Rick Medea is the dirty Chicago police officer that you claim was the trigger man or one of the trigger men in the Danny Seifert murder. We know that Seifert was killed by a, uh, a hit squad with, with multiple people um, on, on that hit squad. The, the names that have been uh, mentioned as part of that hit squad are Joey Lombardo, Tony Spilatro, Frank the German Schweiss, Joey Hansen. Um, I, I might be missing one or two people. <clears throat> but uh, I want to say two things. First... I have also heard um, that Lombardo, yeah, I'm not going to contradict what, what Chucky's saying because um, Chucky has a right to say what he wants to say. I have heard that Joey Lombardo was present um, as he was convicted of being, but, but I've heard from a number of people um, that, he went along on that hit as a as a measure of protection for Danny Seifert's wife and son. Now that doesn't, in my opinion, that doesn't absolve Joey Lombardo of because I believe Joey Lombardo ordered the murder of Danny Seifert. Um, now I do believe, as I said, that that Chuck has a right because of his track record. Um, to get up on the stand and say what he wants to say. And as Chuck will tell you, and as any lawyer will tell you, Chuck gets up there and Chuck perjures himself, Chuck's going to prison. So if I was the federal government and I wanted to jam Chuck up, I'd I'd be be rolling out the red carpet for him to go uh, on the stand. Nonetheless, Rick Medea has been able to skate, if you, if you believe Chuck's account, Rick Medea has been able to skate on any implication in the Seifert hit or any implication in the family secrets. Why I feel comfortable talking about Rick Medea, besides just Chuck pointing the finger at him, Rick Medea was booted off the Chicago police force in 1981 for selling weapons and silencers on the black market. Um, he is now, uh, from what I've been told, uh, living in retirement. He's in his 80s. He lives in Wisconsin. Uh, I have not heard boo from him in, in a month of reporting on this, calling him uh, or saying someone's calling him a murderer, um, which tells me something, that, that the fact that he has not reached out to me to dispute it. Um, and then there's some questions about who prosecuted Rick Medea's case back in 1981. It was Mitch Mars. Who prosecuted Operation Family Secrets? It was Mitch Mars. 
uh, Medea allegedly cooperated, um, from my sources tell me, uh, cooperated with the FBI and the federal government back in the early 80s. Uh, I wonder if he admitted involvement in, in Seifert and was promised immunity, some type of immunity. Um, well, let, let me explain this to you, Scott, and I don't mean to interrupt you. No, but go ahead, Chuck. You're on this tact. Let's take it back a little bit further. Just, just a touch, well, kind of a little back. 19, going back to the six, late six, Medea, and it's proven because there's uh, Tribune news articles which are attached to the motion that's currently sitting before Judge Blakey in U.S. District Court, where Medea was accused of pulling people out of cars, pistol whipping them, and assaulting them. A guy named Sixto Cruz. Um, then again in 71. Then this all happens in 74 um, with Medea. Then when he's brought in, when he, they raided his house on Hood Street in 80, 15 silencers in various stages of completion and completed weapons, firearms, narcotics are found. Silencers back then carried a 10-year sentence and $10,000 fine. Now, there's a couple different accounts that Medea got probation, but I have proof, and I know for a fact that he did prison time very short time. Uh, but if you go into the federal court website, there is no Richard Medea case. It doesn't exist. Um, he also, in that case, according to news accounts and other things that I know personally, and it was well reported that he allegedly made the silencer to hit Sam Giancana. And it's been verified. So explain to me, and this is where... I'm splitting hairs with the government now. Oh, one, I tell the agents I was working with about Medea and Shriver. They do nothing. Oh, five, all the way through to 14. Yeah, Chuck, let me just interject something because I want to keep us on the, on, the, on the narrative that we're building. So sure. just to let people, the audience, know how some of the order of operations was here. So... 05 is when Family Secrets comes down. April of 05, Patrick uh, Fitzgerald announces it. Joey Lombardo and his top enforcer, Frank the German Schweiss, go on the run for uh, roughly a year. Um, and it turned out Lombardo was, was hiding in plain sight. He was on the Grand... He was at, in Grand Avenue, on Grand Avenue. He was on, you know, up and down the west side of Chicago just keeping himself scarce, but the idea that he was off, uh, I think a lot of people believe that, you know, because he was a man of means, uh, that he was out maybe in Europe or uh, in California, uh, when in fact he was he was back home, just being good at hiding himself. Uh, Schweiss, on the other hand, uh, went out to Kentucky and um, was hiding there. But as Lombardo is on the run... Chuck's plea to testify makes it in front of Judge James Zagel, who is the U.S. District Court judge who is assigned family secrets, Rick Halperin, who's Joe Lombardo's uh, criminal defense attorney, I don't know if it was an open court or not, uh, argues to get uh, Maselli to testify. Zagel claims that Maselli is uh, not 
credible. Uh, not credible and 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 disallows his testimony. Lombardo, because he was on the run, allegedly didn't know about this. And Halperin never told him about this. Now, we could ask why. Uh, that's something I wonder myself. Rick Halperin, uh, in my estimation, uh, being someone who covered that trial and was there for 95% of it, uh, Rick Halperin was the was the superstar of the de- of the defense he he uh he was amazing on cross uh, cross examinations um he turned people inside out uh, put them through the uh through the through the dryer and 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 really was masterful in in, in those some of those cross examinations um but i believe he was a somewhat of a tortured soul um he ended up killing himself in 2013 he was in great financial debt, um, dealing with some, I think, personal and professional things. So, so you think he was distracted? Is I, that I don't, what? I don't know. I don't know why. Well, if you're, I mean, again, if you're believing Joey Lombardo, that's up to you, uh, the viewer or the listener. Uh, Joey Lombardo claimed that Rick Halperin never let him know that that Mr. Maselli was was willing to testify on his behalf. When Mr. Lombardo finally discovered that in around 2017 by going through old court documents, uh, going over his appeal, he hand, uh, hand wrote a, 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 a plea to get Maselli back in front of Zagel. Uh, and according to the federal government, was so angry that Judge Zagel denied his request uh, initially he put a hit on Judge Zagel's head and that's why Joey Lombardo ended his life in the Supermax uh, as a 90 year old man in 23 hour uh, lockdown he was in uh, a North Carolina prison hospital from the late 2000s uh, till 2017 when he was transferred that, that never really got reported until I reported it recently um, he, according to the federal government, the people that I've spoken to, had reached out to a African-American uh, gang-connected uh, criminal that he was locked up with in North Carolina. And let, let me ask both of you, how plausible do you think that is? That a, a 90 I don't know what to believe. What do you think? I, I honestly don't know what to believe. Chuck, I, what, do you, what do you think? Is that pl- it seems pretty far-fetched to me, but I mean, I, I don't know. You got a better chance of a snowball lasting in hell. <laughs> and all, I mean, also, how much access did he have to like, like black gang members and Supermax? I, I, I no, 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 no. Back up, back up. Yeah, that's why he got transferred to. Supermax. Oh, right, right. I'm sorry, you're right. But yeah, okay, but he was in North Carolina. He oh, was, he was in Butner. So that's plausible. He that he would have yeah. had interactions with. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was confused. Yeah. Right, yeah. I got, I got you. So that's plausible. But but even so, contracting a hit. I seems like a I, I, okay. I don't want to come off as someone that's giving Joey Lombardo the benefit of the no, doubt. Yeah, this was a da- no, this enough. was a very dangerous, lethal yeah, I get it. Uh, individual who was a professional liar, thief, and killer. I understand, yeah. but <laughs> I will also say that I I could see a, a situation where you know Lombardo was a notorious clown. That's how he got his nickname. He was always you know, wisecracking. I, I could see him making some off-the-cuff remark yeah. um, in a mess hall or something 
and then someone trying to use that yeah. as as leverage. I, I have a hard time believing that Joey Lombardo at 88 years old thought, if, if he was of sane mind, thought that he could pull off an assassination contract on a federal judge. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's far-fetched to me. But you know the only terms I would even remotely consider that under? If if Joe would have been at a place with a Larry Hoover, a Jeff Fort, yeah. someone. Well, he was. A, he was actually at the end. He was. <laughs> they were all together. And the Supermax. You know, with somebody like that, and they said that they conspired with someone of that high level, yeah. Some run-of-the-mill gangbanger, no way. Yeah. Help Joe take that chance. Yeah. Number one. Joe, Joe wouldn't do that out of just his level of integrity. Uh, and number two, there's a rule, you know, and it's always been a rule and it'll always be a rule. Cops, prosecutors, judges, reporters have always been off limit. How many times do you know in, in mob history have has the mob ever done anything that foolish and that, that's stupid? It doesn't happen very often. Well, and it hasn't happened in quite a while. I mean, there was the uh, Jimmy Chagra, but that wasn't traditional OC, that was Woody Harrelson's dad, who, mur- who murdered the federal uh, judge. But again, Jimmy Chagger wasn't, he was a drug dealer. He wasn't really organized crime. Um, right. You had the situation in the, was it the 40s or 50s where uh, Johnny Dio threw the acid right. um, in the reporter's face? Yeah, and, and then there's in Phoenix, uh, Don Bowles. Right. They had a reporter who was blown, was he blown up? In his car, yeah, car bomb. Yeah, he was investigating the Chicago. He yeah. was actually investigating Chicago and Detroit. Yeah, Licavoli, Licavoli right? Down and, in Tucson and Tucson. Yeah. Um. So you're right. It, it's but uh, the, the, the it's not like Italy or Sicily right. where where they killed judges and prosecutors all like all the time. But in in you know there is a very famous New York Don Vinnie Gorgeous. He's yeah. in Supermax right now because... Changed the paradigm. They, cl- <laughs> they claim that Vinnie, Vinnie Gorgeous was trying to put out a hit out on prosecutors right. and judges. Right. Um, that's, more, yeah, what, that's more plausible to me than the, Joey, than the Joey Lombardo one. Yeah, what these kids do today, this new breed is a whole different, but when you're talking about Joey's era and the guys that Joey came and grew up with, they like that. They, sure. they never... It brings too much heat. In Philadelphia, and, Anastasia, my... My mentor, George Anastasia, uh, had a murder contract put on his head. I shouldn't oh, Stam- laugh about it. Stampha. Should, uh, had a murder contract put on his head by John Stampha, the, the godfather in Philly. But again, I don't know but how serious but, but again, it was. That, that's, I, mean, I guess it's, it's always serious when someone no, puts a contract on your head. But it, I don't know if it was it ever is, but, close to being carried out. But remember, Stampha was Sicilian. Like, he wasn't, yeah. he's not, he wasn't part of that code that Chuck is talking about. Stampha was a right. Sicilian guy who was like, in Palermo, we fucking kill everybody. Yeah. There there's no, there's no, uh, no code. from the black hand. Yeah. So, you so, know, the aura was a whole different belief system that came over from Sicily. You know, when, when the mafia or the mob or whatever you want to call it came to the United States and they became powerful, it was a lot more Americanized, I guess. You know, it still had a lot of old world tradition. You know, the guys that came from Sicily that were part of the Black Hand and the Camorra, they had a whole different set of stances. They were Lord God in execution, and they still are. Yeah, the Camorra's in, uh, yeah, uh, Napoli. Chuck, can you, can you give us 
a little bit of color on on Joey Lombardo. Um, again, for people that might not be incredibly well-versed on, on Joey Lombardo, he was a longtime capo of the Grand Avenue crew, was, was, was bequeathed that crew in the early 70s, uh, became consigliere of the Chicago outfit uh, in the 90s. At some point, people thought he was possibly the acting boss for a while. Uh, and without question, you can just judge by the nickname, um, Joey the Clown Lombardo was one of the most colorful, organized crime figures in American history. Um, but I think that that facade of a clown belied, uh, again, a, a very, very duplicitous, dangerous individual. I was, I saw him a couple times um, when I was in law school. I would go to uh, what they... <laughs> They sometimes refer to as the the Grand Avenue uh, um, kitchen <laughs> down at uh, at La Scrolla, uh, which is kind of the dining room for the Grand Avenue crew. Uh, a lot of them eat at La Scrolla and then go have a drink at Richard's next door, uh, right at Grand, uh, right when where Grand Halsted and Milwaukee all come together. Uh, so I used to go to La Scrolla uh, and see Joey sometimes from afar. Uh, then when I was in my uh, uh, late 20s or uh, what was my early late 20s early 30s and I got that book deal um I, I sat in that trial uh a family secrets and got to witness Joey every day for about three or four months but I never got to personally interact with him um but you know at least in court he lived up to the reputation he was always uh given little quips um like you know kind of like a grandfather that that tells stupid jokes but 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 they're funny because it's coming from him uh, the jury was eating it up. The jury loved it. I've always said if Joey Lombardo hadn't have got on the witness stand, um, I think there was a good chance he could have been acquitted. Uh, he killed himself on the witness stand. That The little clown act worked really well in 30-second bits. It didn't work so well over two days on the stand. But, Chuck, give us, uh, you know, you knew him personally from a young age. What was, uh, what was Joey Lombardo like? Phenomenal. You know, everybody looks at, guys in the outfit from what they read in the newspapers and a lot of your viewers you know nationwide worldwide whatever the coverage is don't understand that these guys go home they have a family they have children they have grandchildren they have wives they have girlfriends they have this they have that joe was probably one of the kindest most generous giving guys in the outfit i ever met in my 55 years of being around people like that. And I've been around them since I, far back as I can remember. Yeah, you got some cold-blooded killers that don't give a shit about anything or anybody. Schweiz was one of them, okay? Spilatro was another loaded gun. Uh, you know, it was all about him and, you know, screw the world. Joey used to go down to the neighborhood. I've seen him donate money to women that didn't have rent money, and it wasn't for any favor in return. Um, he was like your quintessential um, walk down the street of his neighborhood, and people would come up to him with problems. And, you know, I, I, I actually, I watched, a, there was a movie on last night, The Godfather, and I watched it, and I remember a scene, and I think it was The Godfather too. I don't remember, where the old lady had went to the the Don's wife, um, Brando's wife, and said, uh, you know, I'm getting thrown out of my apartment because I got a dog. 
And that reminded me of Joe, where he would go talk to the landlord and pay the rent and, you know, what's it going to take to let her stay here? Those were the types of things in the way that Joe was. There, he'd go down to parks and schools or neighborhood, you know, play, go play stickball. Or he was a really good, a really good athlete. I, you know, in my book, Family Secrets, I do a kind of a deep dive into his bio because I got my hands on a, a FBI file and Chicago Crime Commission file um, that went really a lot into his childhood and his teen years and his early 20s. And he uh, was was a was a basketball player and a bowler and a baseball player and a golfer, um, uh, someone that was very athletic and uh, someone that... Um, I also want to, to to add on to something you said, and then I want you to speak to it. You talked about being around the neighborhood. One of the things that I pointed out in that book and, and that was pointed out to me by a lot of people that I interviewed was in an era, and, and I think this this is uh, transcends crime families. It, it goes from city to city. Um, by the 1980s, most crime bosses in major cities were moving out to the suburbs and were abandoning their territories and they would still keep a presence there, but they were not boots on the ground, so to speak. Joey Lombardo never left Grand Avenue until the day he died. Um, and at a time when all of his contemporaries were moving out, um, River Forest, uh, a, a lot of other places uh, outside of the city, in, in leafy, nice neighborhoods. Yeah, it's pretty exceptional. Yeah, Joey stayed in, in the same apartment, and he lived in that uh, apartment, I think, for 50 years, 60 years. He owned the apartment building, but but uh, he lived in that uh, in that one apartment, the same one for, for a long time, and never never left Grand Avenue. Yeah, it just sold a couple weeks ago, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, he, because that was his home. You know, he was old school Italian. That was his home. Those were his people. That's where he felt comfortable. He didn't need, you know, a lot of the guys were, you know, Scott was a little um, searching for the towns. It was, you know, northwest side of Chicago, Galewood, Montclair, uh, those areas, Elmwood Park, River Grove, River Forest, uh, Schiller Park, North Lake, Stone Park, El Melrose Park. Those were all mob enclaves. And then the guys started to move out to Hillside, Oak Brook, Barrington, you know, the, the, the plush years, south, northwest, southwest suburbs. Um, and, you know, coming out of Bridgeport, moving out to the Heights and stuff like that. People weren't like Joe. Joe loved his people, you know, and they loved him. I mean, if you walked out on Grand Avenue today and said something bad about him, you might not get out of there without a beating. You so know, there's still it, a lot of Italians down there in that neighborhood? Yeah. Not as many as there, there used to be, but there's still an enclave. It's just like there's still a major enclave on Taylor Street. There'll always be one. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of flight now, you know, for different reasons, especially what's going on with, you know, the way the city's being run. And, you know, you think about it. If guys like Joe Lombardo, Tony Accardo, um, Iupa, Cerrone, those guys, imagine if they were still here today. Do you think we'd be having all this violence in the city disrupting <laughs> business? If you could, they'd do a Vito Rizzuto. Tony Accardo would call call a meeting of all the uh, all the gang banging heads and tell them to quiet down. It would be either we'll stop you, yeah. It would stop, or we will shut everything down you've got. And it wouldn't be, you know, the Chicago police would be able to do their job, 
and which they do an excellent job, but you know, their hands are tied to a limit right now. They can't go out there and do what they need to do. So Chuck, I got a question. Uh, Jimmy and I have, have bandied about, and we've asked some other guests. Um, you might've heard me ask read this. Uh, I once had a meal with a former high ranking member of the outfit um, who told me something in his opinion that surprised me. Um, I asked him, uh, so the Spilatro brothers were murdered. Uh, it's one of the hits we're talking about in Family Secrets. Uh, it was depicted in the movie Casino. The last one of the last scenes where where uh, Joe Pesci and his brother are, are beaten and stomped and strangled to death. That really happened. It didn't happen in a cornfield. It happened in a, a in a basement in uh, in a Chicago suburb, um, and it was witnessed by. <laughs> The, the pretty much the whole sitting Chicago mob administration. That's how angry people were, were with him. They wanted to witness his murder. Um, there's always been a theory out there. Joey Lombardo, who was very close to Spilatro, uh, Lombardo was in prison uh, between 1982 and 1992. Um, Spilatro had gotten out of control. If you saw the movie Casino, did a pretty good job of, of showing that. Uh, Spilatro was... Uh, making a lot of waves. He he gotten hooked on cocaine. Uh, he was talking about killing his way to the top of the outfit. Th those uh, stories were getting back to the Accardos and Iupas of the world in Chicago. He was sleeping with Lefty's wife, as we saw in the in the movie. Um, which that's no good. Yeah, that's no good. <laughs> the, the little guy, uh, he wouldn't be fucking the Jew's wife, would he? Because <laughs> that's Cause no if, good. Because if it is, it's no good. Um. And, uh, which, by the way, that character Remo is like a composite of uh, Accardo and Ayupa, probably more closer to Ayupa. But, uh, so I asked this guy, you know, if uh, if Joey Lombardo was alive, do the Splatter brothers get murdered? Does he, does he, does he stop it? And the guy no. that, the guy that I was talking to said, Lombardo would have tried, would have tried to stop it, and they would have killed Lombardo too. No. I totally disagree. Okay. Well, you're the second person to, to disagree with that. And you guys know better than I do. So After the mess up, you know, and I understand that people in entertainment got to make their movies and make their money and they got to make it work and sell. That's part of the problem with fiction versus reality. When they sell these fictional stories, people tend to take it as reality. Let me explain something that people usually don't talk about. And I will go to my grave believing this. There's a rule in Chicago. And there was, it, it's not a rule anymore. But let's put it this way. In, in the late 80s, this rule was trounced on. In the 90s, it was evaporated. In the new millennium, it's probably completely gone. But the, in the old school days, you deal, you use, you die. You're undependable. And Spilatro stepped all over that rule like it was nothing. Um, you don't their made guy's wife, period. Doesn't wife, girlfriend, daughter, against the rules. Um, you don't kill a woman or a child. Um, I've seen some FBI reports myself, some intelligence reports that are out there that I was able to get a hold of that are released under Freedom of Information that Spilatro corroborates me. And Spilatro for years wanted to go back and go after Emma Seifert because him and Schweiz we're in a habit of leaving witnesses yeah, behind. And we know that he killed Tamara Rand 
who was the female uh, from, I believe, San Diego. Yeah. Who had a piece of the hotel uh, and casino that they wanted to get rid of. And, uh, you know, Schweiz killed his girlfriend because he told her about something. Yeah. And let me explain to you, those two guys that were on the inside of the building that day, from what I understand, uh, don't know that from personal knowledge that day, but know it from personal knowledge years later and over the years of being around different people. Um, Joey was adamant that nothing would happen or Joe. And it makes, uh, and it makes sense if you're going to play mob psychiatrist here. It would ma- I, I've always, I always ask myself, Joey Lombardo in 1974 was a capo. Why is he going along on a hit? But if you talk to the insiders that I've spoken to, and he was genuinely worried that he sent his his hit team out, they weren't just going to do away with Danny. Kill Siebert. everybody. They're the going to do away with Emma and Joey. It well, would Joey, make more sense for Joey to 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 go as as protection. Nobody knew Joey Seifert was going to be there. That was a total wild card. Joey will tell you that himself. I, I talk to him every day. Um, Joey um, got played hooky that day, basically, but they knew Emma would be there. And you have to understand, while it wasn't a, a religious godfather, he was the godfather to their son, Joe. Okay. Um, Bonnie Vent worked there, who I happen to be very close friends with, her son. Um, known well. Um, and when with Bonnie Venturini there and all these people that had dined and been friends, Joe was not one of the ones about killing a woman unless there was one hell of a damn good reason. And knowing that you're sending two loose cannons in to do something, um, I'm not 100%, and, and I've told Joey this, I'm not, because I wasn't inside there, I'm not 100% convinced Joe was there, but if Joe was there, and from what I've been told over the years, he was there for only one purpose, and that was to make sure he walked out of that building alive when he when he knew the way it was going to go down and who was assigned to do it. He did not give the order. The order came from Accardo, okay? And Accardo was the only one that could give that type of a level of an order. Now, Joe did have the seal of approval. Now that he's dead and gone, it don't matter. Joe had seal approval. From that day forward, Nothing, nobody got clipped without Joe knowing about it. Now, whether he gave the nod or the okay or whatever, he was knowledgeable, I'm sure, about many, many things that he took to his grave with him. That's not what he was indicted for. Okay? Right. So let's also give some context, Chuck, to the fact that, like what I said about if Joey Lombardo doesn't take the stand— and, and sink his own ship, there was the amount of evidence tying Lombardo to that murder was thin. I mean, real thin. Uh, you well, had – go ahead. I, I'm stopping you here for a reason, Scott. Joe's constitutional rights wouldn't have been violated had the lawyers, the defense lawyers – now, I, from prison, had quite a – astronomical expense for a guy that's in prison that doesn't have much, sent postage after postage. If you go through the record, any of your viewers on PACER, be my guest. Go to the case number, 02CR1050. I don't think I'll forget it till the day I die. Um, And you look at the pleadings from, like Scott said, before Joey was even taken into custody up until a month ago, 
less than a month ago now. I am the only movement that has ever been acknowledged in that case that wasn't an actual party to that case. I put Zagel into a position seven by filing legal pleadings, and he actually issued an evidentiary affidavit, July 24th, 07, if I, 06 or 07. And he made the mistake, in my opinion. He came back at me with an order denying my motion to intervene in the case, but he said if I wanted to file a new motion with an evidentiary affidavit of what I would bring to the case, which I think you got a copy of, Scott, um, he would allow and entertain it. I was elated. I'm like, no problem. I sent him back a multiple page with a map of what I would bring to the case. Now, you tell me if either one of you were on trial, sitting in Joe Lombardo's chair, Frank Lombardo's chair, anybody's chair in that room, and you're on trial with other defendants, you're not severed, and you got all these other high-powered defense attorneys there. Whether it was true, whether it was not true, reasonable doubt is what you have to create in front of the jury. And you don't push to put Charles Maselli on the stand or put me under oath, depose me, debrief me, interview me, None of it was done just because the government all of a sudden tells you, oh, he's a fucking liar. Don't believe him. But keep in mind, every pleading I sent in, the records replete between 1990 and 2014 when Joe's appellate attorney finally contacted me, coincidentally also a Bernstein, different spelling. David Bernstein reaches out to me and says, where the hell are you and who the hell are you? And why has nobody talked to you yet? And Bernstein expends quite a bit of money to debrief me, comes to Florida, interviews me, takes my statement. He said, wrote a letter, which Scott has a copy of. You are the most knowledgeable person I've ever talked to about the inner workings of family secrets. And what you're doing could restore Joe's freedom. He asked me to sign an affidavit. I sign an affidavit. I make a couple corrections to it. It gets filed back in front of the judge. Now, it's not by a pro se guy in prison anymore. It's not by a so-called convicted con artist anymore. That, by the way, has testified in four trials, been to the grand jury six times, uh, you know, never lost in court, uh, never been found guilty of perjury, never been convicted of anything. And, and I'll, I'll add to it right here. My convictions were white-collar convictions from business problems that involved financial crimes of my own fault. These weren't things that tied me to I was out taking somebody's money and running off with it and nobody ever saw me again or bilking people out of billions of dollars. These were business deals that gone bad, and the record reflects that. The so-called case that they called me a con man over, they offered me time served for in Florida for three years, and I turned it down and went to trial because I was trying to fight for custody of my children. And when I lost at trial, they punitively sentenced me to 20 years. That's how I got the time. Uh, so if you're offering somebody time served, and this is on the record, and this is how I'm able to dispute what they say all the time, it's easy to talk shit out of your mouth, but you know what? The only one that's ever been able to go put the paper on the table is me. And then even while I was gone, and this is something I'm not I'm not embarrassed about at all. I've got, like any other guy in the outfit, I was a cop. I was in the outfit. I was a father. I've got two daughters and a son that I adore. 
I had a guy come to me in prison in 1995, tell me he murdered and sexually assaulted a white woman, left her laying in a gutter outside a bar for dead. And I reached out to some people I knew, found out that the police department released the murder vehicle, had nothing on this guy to put him away, and she left two small children behind. I cooperated. I did an, my own independent investigation of the guy. He was stupid enough to tell me everything he did. I handed the police department 29 questions with everything that they could possibly need to prove I was telling the truth, including the fact that he not only beat her to death, he ran her over with a car and left her laying in a street in Rock Island and put him away for two back-to-back -back life sentences. So if I'm credible through all of that, and there was a letter that was written in 1996, four years before 2001, that the investigators from the police department in Rock Island talked to their sources at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago and verified my, my credibility and my trustworthiness. And Scott Levin told them, absolutely. If Chuck Maselli tells you it's true, it's true. Now, how does that evaporate in four years when we went through the Clinton trial in 96 and 97? We had to take it to trial twice for one reason. We had one juror on there that we think was paid off, and she absolutely refused to vote guilty. So we had to retry it, and we did it within 30 days. Uh, the new jury came back in less than a half hour with guilty. And then even after that, in 2010 and 20, 2007 and 2010, I assisted with a rape and murder case down in Florida and put a rapist away who raped a woman on New Year's Eve, a uh, young mother. So you tell me if through before, after. And, and you helped uh, stop a, a hit on Vicky Gotti. Yes, I did. Tell, so us about, tell us about that. I mean, that our audience is going to want to know about yeah. that. I got to be careful what I say um, because I don't want to be responsible for anything happening to anybody because I don't know how it was handled. Um, when, when I came in in 01 and I was talking with the agents, I told them, you know, hey, when I left the streets, there was a lot of things going on that, you know, we probably need to talk about. And they were only interested in what was going on in Chicago. So I sat down with my attorney. I got appointed a public defender when they were hiding me here. And I got appointed a private, I got a private attorney we hired. And I sat down with both of them and they actually took a deposition from me, which was kind of like a roadmap they wanted because they, there was so much in my head, they wanted it down on paper. And I sat down with my attorneys and I said, I got an issue in New York that I got sent out on a job to go investigate what somebody wanted done and report back. And I went out there and I did it. And I said, here's the plane ticket. Here's the proof I was there. Here's all the evidence that I was there. Here's the people I was with. Um, and they about shit their pants. They said, Chuck, do you realize who this woman is? I said, yeah, I know who she is. I said, not everybody knows her real last name. It's not Gotti. It's Agnello. Yeah. I said, I is. And I said, why do you think I'm worried? I said, do you think I'm stupid enough? Even in 2001 with her dad gone? Her dad wasn't gone yet. Her dad was dead in 02, but he was in prison. Right. He went away in 86. No, he went away in 90. Early 90s. 90, the end of 90. Yeah. He was, a, he was he got, picked up then. No, he, he, he took power in 85, and he was locked right. up in December of 90. And then he died okay. in 02. 
you're right, because I was at Tomoka at the time down by Daytona. And I told him, I said, I'm not going to let nothing happen to this girl. I'm just not. And Jamie Coons, who was my attorney at the time, he said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, I want you to send a letter to the state attorney telling them what's going on and tell them to notify the officials in New York. I need to talk to them. I said, because if we don't and something happens, I don't want it on my hands. And I was in New York at the time that this happened. I came back to Chicago. I went to the person that sent me out there. And he said, so what's this all about? He said, we got a call. They wanted something done from Chicago to New York. And uh, do we do this? And I handed him the money that I was given, and I threw it on his desk. I said, I'm not touching it with a 10-foot fucking pole. If you want to do it, be my guest. You're out of your fucking mind. And he looked at me, and he said, well, who is it and what is it? And when I got done telling him who was dumb enough to do something like this, he looked at me, and he says, I got this. He put the money in his drawer. He picked up the telephone, and that was the last I ever heard of it from Chicago. When I told the federal authorities about it and I told them who they could talk to and what they needed to do, let's put it this way. The person that did it ended up going to federal prison for a while, non-related to this. And I know for a fact that Victoria knows what happened. Here's, here's, here's what gives, again, some merit to what he's saying, is that we do know, uh, from my own personal reporting, when it comes to White Boy Rick, that there were contracts going back and forth between the Gotti camp and the Gravano camp. Now, I'm not exactly, and I'm not asking Chuck to tell us. I don't know how this gets into Chicago at all, but Gravano's people were going out stalking the Gotti family, trying to murder Junior, trying to murder Vicky, and in return... The Gotti's had people out looking to kill Sammy the Bull and his family. I, I know this from looking at federal documents myself because White Boy Rick, who I uh, kind of made my bones as a reporter on, um, he, one of the things that he got credit for in his cooperation was helping stop a, a hit that Sammy the Bull had put on John Jr. And I, I, and I in that uh, dossier that I got my hands on, uh, there was a whole breakdown of the dispute between the Gottis and the Gravanos and how it extended past when both of them had gone into prison and how there were these active contracts going back and forth in the well, early 2000s. Um, and it makes sense because Gravano wouldn't be able to get New York people to do something, <laughs> something like this, presumably. You'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, a lot of people didn't like the Gottis. You got to remember that. What I will tell you is it was not Gravano. It was somebody much more closer to Victoria. And let me tell you something about Sammy. Sammy's alive today because not everybody thinks that what, what Sammy did, what Sammy did was, but the reasons that he did it for, he got put in a position that he couldn't get out of. Because let me tell you something, there's an old school rule, and this goes back to the old days. Again, you never, ever go in a hallway and talk about your underboss because you're jealous and say he's got to go. Sammy was the type of guy that if John would have told him, jump out the fucking third floor window, first, the only thing Sammy would have said is, how high do you want me to jump first? And to go into a hallway 
And Sammy had to listen to those tapes. Now, do I think it's right that all the other people got taken down? But when John says that you got to go back then in those days, you were going. Mm-hmm. So no win situation. This is interesting because I've often wondered why. If the Gambinos wanted to get Gravano, they could have. It seems to me. But it wasn't the Gambinos. No, I'm saying, I'm saying, but why? But this is to his point of why weren't the Gambinos interested in going after him? That could be to Chuck's I think what point. Chuck's that, point is, I don't think a, a lot of the Gambinos were right, upset that, that the Gaddis were that's what I'm saying. out of power. Right, right. That's what I'm. That's to his point of like. And you got to realize maybe they didn't. They, maybe they didn't want to get him. Yeah, and then there's another thing at play here, and we're kind of all over the place on this episode. But in that time period, in the early 2000s, was at the time that the Gaddis were losing power of the uh, in the Gambinos. Yeah, John. John Sr. was still able to keep control of that family in one way or the other through Junior and through Peter. His brother, yeah. By the early 2000s, the Sicilian wing, Sicilian wing of that family was moving them out and taking over. And that's where we are right now, 20 years later. And they didn't give a shit about Gravano, probably. Right, right. Well, it wasn't so much. You got to understand something. Put yourself in the position, okay? You're the boss. And... Scott's your underboss. Scott's killed his own brother-in-law for you. And you're in a hallway talking to Joe Piney about Scott's got a horse farm. Scott's got a nice house. Scott's got a drywall business. Why Scott all got this money? But you're out gambling, doing all kinds of things that are blowing your money. Okay, spending it on lawyers because you're on TV every other day. And I don't fault John for being John. That's who he was. But you're out spending your money in other areas. Scott's a saver. He's worried about his family. He's worried about building a business. He's worried about building and, a And Sammy, ne- Sammy wasn't a partier. He never went out. John was out no. every night. Sam- Sammy was back. Uh, Sammy never had girlfriends. Sammy was out every night when he was with John. Right. But um, Sammy was someone who was faithful to his wife. I mean, relatively compared to the rest of them. I'm the one who has to go meet with that lay down Cazzo Pauly. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the rules. It's about <laughs> parameters. <laughs> right. Then sitting in the courtroom... And the feds want to pull these tapes out and they play them for him where the guy that he pled for, yeah. the guy would do anything in the world for, no, no, hey, Scott, or, or hey, why do I got to, there was never a why. It was when, how, and where, and okay, it's done. And I believe Sammy flipped within 24 hours of hearing those tapes. Yeah, it was he pretty, did. pretty fast. Yeah. I think he, he asked for uh, the number of a fed when he was sitting there stewing after they played him in court. Now, this is very intriguing because I'm trying to think of who else would want Vic, Victoria Gotti out of the way. Well, and he mentioned that, you know, Vicky was Vicky Agnello at the time. She was married to her, yeah. Carmine the Bull Agnello, who was a made member of the Gambinos, who now for some reason is operating out of Cleveland. Right. Um, but all those Gotti kids that you saw on the reality show, their name is actually Agnello. Right. Right. Very intriguing. Well, Chucky, this was great. We hope to... Uh, you know, continuing building a relationship with you here at the OG Pod, as you said, we're we're breaking our cherry with you here uh, on our first video cast, and what uh, success! And we hope we can bring you back and and keep on uh, chronicling the story because I don't think it's over with. I think there's maybe another chapter to be written in in the Family Secrets case. Well, we'll see. Right now, like I said, there's a motion sitting before a U.S. District Court judge to take a second swipe at what happened with Michael uh, James Marcello because there's some loose ends there that I think he really needs to know about concerning Medea. Yep. Uh, it's public record. 
there's no secret to it anymore, and it's no secret to it that his attorney, I tried to approach him, and he didn't exactly receive me very well. Um, but your viewers, yourselves, be free. Go on Pacer, take a look at it. It's not fictitious. And the only thing I ask is I don't mind being held accountable for anything, and I don't mind being transparent. Anybody can ever ask me a question. All I ask is people to stop making assumptions and stop lying about me. I have a very transparent life. I've been through hell. Um, tell the truth, and please don't tell people you know me if you don't. Jimmy Marcello, who he referenced, uh, is really the only member or only co-defendant in that case that's left in prison. He was probably— well, is. Who else is? Paul Shiro. I'm sorry, say that again. Paul the Indian Shiro. Oh, Paul the Shiro, right. Paul the Shiro is still locked up. I, I thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, Paul the Shiro uh, was the, the Tony Spilato's guy in Arizona. Uh, he was convicted of the little Malvachi hit. Yeah, he's doing life. And then Jimmy Marcello, who was the acting boss of the Chicago Mafia when the indictment came down in April of 05. Uh, so him and Lombardo and Frank the Breeze Calabrese were the three headlining defendants in the case. Frank Calabrese is dead. He died in prison. Joey Lombardo was dead. He died in prison. Jimmy Marcello is still alive. I believe he's 77-ish, 78. Um, and, and, and Chuck just said he's been filing some motions on, on Marcello's behalf. His, just like Joey um, Lombardo, the conviction of Marcello for the Spilatro brothers' murder, again, very, very thin evidence, um, more so than uh, Lombardo, because Cal Nick Calabrese actually mentions him as being present, and you have a, someone that's actually uh, a made member of the outfit standing uh, on the stand and, and implicating you. But other than that, all you had was a voice... Uh, that was identified by Jimmy Marcello's daughter and wife as sounding like, I should say, look, they say Michael, like Michael Spilatro's daughter and wife saying that the person that called Michael and Tony to the meeting they were killed at sounded, sounded like, like Jimmy Marcello. Jimmy Marcello is alleged to have driven the Spilatro brothers to the slaughter. And I know we want to end this, but, you know, I think there's one very large, important point we need to make, Scott. Had I been allowed to testify, Nick Calabrese told the federal government, I got Frank Schweiz's body. His name, or I'm sorry, not Frank Schweiz, uh, Michael Elbergo. Yeah, Hambone. 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 They went to 35th and Shields. The only thing they dug up is dog bones. The name that I gave Mars... And the ATF agents in 01 was Hambone. He's not been located to this day. Now, if they had done a proper excavation and they had actually located his remains, and my version of what happened to him was correct and Nick's was wrong, and Nick would have been impeached like that, that's where the pieces of the puzzle come together because they had to shut me down because had they brought Hambone out of Evans Field in 01, there never would have been. It contradicts what Calabrese is telling them about family secrets. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do you want us to uh, let people know uh, anything you want to plug, anything you want uh, you know, people to, to be able to contact you? or If you want to contact me, you can contact me through Joe Seifert at Joey's Social Club. He's on uh, 
pretty much all the websites or I have a page on family uh, on Facebook family secret secrets I post from time to time right now I'm not posting until this uh, motion is ruled upon because I don't want to think that they have the courts think that I'm trying to plug it for media purposes now that we've got something in front of a judge I'm kind of stepping back a little bit for a minute but uh, Joey's Social Club is on Facebook. It's on YouTube. Uh, Joey Seifert is out there. He's my producer for the uh, documentary and movie and book that I'll be doing in the future. So, and clearly, let's tell people, or just connect dots for them, that so the Seifert family is in some ways co-signing what, what Chuck is having to say. So this is coming from the victim's family. Uh, yes. It's not coming from the Lombardo family. No, Joe, Joe, I, I'm not going to discuss what Joe and Nick are doing, but all I can say is if you want to look at some of the credibility, go back and look at the first podcast I ever did with Joey. Um, and I've done a couple with him and Carl Giancana, uh, who's my close friend. And we've done them on Joey's podcast. And uh, I think that'll speak for itself. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, I'm going to take us out here. Hopefully we'll have Chuck Maselli back uh, for uh, Chapter 2 on the unra- po- potential unraveling of the Family Secrets case. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You've done it all. You've said it all. Uh, for Jimmy Bucciolato. Social media. Got to do social Jimmy, media. Shout it out. Buddy. So we got to make sure that uh, our audience knows that uh, eventually this episode and other episodes are going to be on the Original Gangsters podcast YouTube channel, which I know a few of you already know about. We, we have had a channel for a while, but there's not a lot of content on there. But uh, please subscribe to that. Uh, the audio will still be on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. So please follow us on social media, at Gangster Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and look for the video content coming out. And also look for uh, more exciting content coming out. Uh, This is just the beginning. So uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, This is Jimmy Bucciolato. For Scott Bernstein. See ya. Out.